We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. And you can also search out their website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon, all one word, dot com. There you can listen to old shows as well. Ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Good morning, gentlemen. Good Hi. to see you all. Hi, Scott. Talking about lowering your expectations, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> How do we do that? Just like a good marriage, you have to lower your expectations, <laughs> and you have to lower your expectations with investments at times. Uh, I thought it was keeps everybody happy. There you go. <laughs> no, it's uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, we've had some really good results in the last number of years. Really, from yeah. two thousand eight nine, that financial crisis we had, we had a couple dips along the way, and I think people are just kind of getting used to having you know double digit returns it's our 10 year anniversary for the financial crisis exactly started oh, wow. the beginning of it started wow. exactly this week 10 years ago really yeah wow. hard to believe and, and again if you look at the people back then talk about fear taking over they mm. would have killed just to see the money get back to even mm-hmm. like honestly it was like please just get my money even i'll be out of this yeah and that was the kind of uh, kind of fear you had out there. Some people bailed, went into GICs, mm-hmm. and that was the the big mistake. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That's where you really that's the difference of having a financial planner or not. The ones that have nobody to kind of talk to or maybe give facts or kind of hold their hand, if you will, they often made the big mistake. Mm-hmm. And that big mistake cost them so many thousands upon hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on their portfolio size. And now it's the other way. I think we're getting into the other side of things where it's the greed now. People are saying, wow, you didn't make me enough money. Mm. And it's so interesting. DNA does not change. (laughs) It can be the same people actually that were fearful back in 08, 09 that we wanted to get out. And those same people that hung in there now are saying, wow, you only made me a couple percent this year, Don. Like what's going on? (laughs) It's it's so funny. It's human nature. Honestly, I always said that we're not wired to make money. Mm. And so we look at the first half of this year. And, you know, everything around us sounds like it's doing great. You hear real estate still going up. Mm -hmm. You hear unemployment is like hitting all-time lows. In the States particularly, you can't even, like, I know, I heard of one place in uh, South Carolina that actually had to go to business. They couldn't find anybody to to work there. Hmm. They had to say, okay, this isn't a good place. We have to close this one and just keep the other one. Trying to keep workers uh, was was tough because they could jump job to job. Mm -hmm. It was easy. Whoever's going to pay you more. Wage growth is usually a sign, and that's always at the tail end of kind of the good times. Mm -hmm. So, you know, some people who had a, say, a balanced portfolio um, in the first six months, they might have only received in six months like a 1% return. Mm-hmm. And I said, how can that be? You know, you're, you're hearing about, you know, some particular stocks doing phenomenal. Um, Facebook was at that time after six months. You heard of Amazon hitting record highs. You're hitting Netflix, um, Google, Apple, and Microsoft. All these are just rocketing. And, and really, it's kind of, I don't know about you, Andy, but it kind of reminds me a little bit of year 2000. Mm-hmm. You know, with the tech stocks were just booming and it was almost like a party going on and and if you weren't weren't in tech stocks like something was wrong like you had to get into them mm-hmm. well you know and, and par- setting it all up too as i said 10 year anniversary so it exactly 10 years ago this week the dow jones industrial average was around 11000 that's mm-hmm. what the index measurement was 11000 by by march uh you know 4 months later 5 months later 
uh, it had dropped down to 6,600. Mm-hmm. So almost cut in half, like yeah. down about 40%. <clears throat> Today at 26,000 is up 200% over the last 10 years. And you're hearing rumblings that it's not going to last, that this is running. Well, and this is, and this is what Don's saying. So we're, Mm -hmm. you know, people have been enjoying that run and there's been some blips along the way, uh, but enjoying that run, but creating an expectation and it's become sort of, uh, just normalized that returns are positive Mm -hmm. and things are always growing Mm -hmm. they don't go down in value do they yeah yeah. (laughs) and and it's kind of interesting or a weak return a period of weak returns yeah just a low return isn't good enough anymore oh wow we should be hitting double digits what's wrong with this and to make it worse people are starting to extrapolate oh you only made me one percent in the first half that's me i'm gonna make two percent for the whole year yes i could have done just as well in a gic markets don't work that way in literally one month, you can get the whole year's return. Yeah, yeah. They can do nothing for 11 months. In one month, they do go up 8% and you end up with an 8% return. Yeah. But it's actually interesting going back to 10 years ago, the Dow Jones hit 14,093, October 12th, 2007. It okay. already started to drop, getting ready. Because it's like, oh, something just doesn't smell right. And mm-hmm. the stock market is sees things in advance. Mm-hmm. Um, it it kind of is about six months to a year out, trying to get a sniff of what's going on and predicting what they see in about the year. Boy, were they right, okay? Because mm. it started going down from October 12th, 07, and it, it continued to drop. In fact, um, it took five and a half years from that point just to get back to even. Mm-hmm. October 12th, um, sorry, March 1st, 2013, it got back to 14,000. So if had you invested just in the Dow, and again, not including dividends, which might be 1, 1%, 1.5% a year, you would have broke even after five and a half years. So the whole point I'm saying here is, is about diversifying. So you're, you're looking at it right now, and if you, if you bought into a diversified portfolio, which most are, in fact, all our clients do, mm-hmm. we don't try to say, okay, I think the U.S. is going to do well this year. Let's move it to the U.S. Right. We do not do that. I want to be very clear. Any good financial planner does not try to f- have a crystal ball and say, you know what, I think that's a good spot this year. Let's move it all to Canada. Let's m- change it up. That's a recipe for disaster. And that's how most f- people get in trouble trying to guess the market. But right now, after six months, the Toronto stock market was uh, about 1.95%. So it had only done 2%. The uh, European market did about 1.83% after six months. Emerging markets, China, India, the, sm- the kind of the riskier countries did minus 226 Funny enough, the Dow Jones, a U.S. stock market, did 2.81%. Still nothing to write home about. Mm -hmm. What had done well is the S&P 500, which is another U.S. index, it did 7.5%. But if you dug a little deeper, well, how did the S&P 500 do so well and the Dow Jones didn't do well? Well, the value side of the S&P 500 did Mm 2.28%. And the growth side did 12.33%. So what's happening is the growth sector of U.S. only (laughs) is doing extremely well. And no other country is doing well um, other than a specific spot in the U.S. um, stock market. And by to be the exact same as that would be like the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ is growth companies. They would include like, again, the FANG stocks like we talked about. And they've did... 13.92% 13.92% after six months. Now, they didn't actually do that. This is the other interesting part. When we look at it, 
I said, wow, that's phenomenal growth. Well, not really. It actually did only 7.18%. So they call it 7% the NASDAQ. But also our currency has gone from $1.25 um, for a US dollar to buy a Canadian dollar to $1.31. Mm-hmm. So our currency has gone down, and which means the US dollar has gone up. It's gone up by 5% in the first six months, and it's continued to um, do well against the Canadian dollar. So really what's happened is the NASDAQ's done about seven and the currency's done five or 6%, and that's why U.S. equities look really good. They look like they're hitting double digits after six months. Mm-hmm. When it's really a currency's half of it practically and growth stocks is the other half. So if you're gonna look at your portfolio and you happen to get really lucky and you're on your group plan at work or wherever you're doing your own thing and you happen to have U.S. growth oriented stocks or a mutual fund in growth stocks, you're gonna look like a hero. And you may say, what the heck am I doing with my financial planner? He's not doing that well. Well, your financial planner is probably doing a good job Mm -hmm. because he would probably have some fixed income in there. He would have Canadian in there. He would have value companies as well as growth companies. He would have emerging markets. He would not have all your money in US. And it's so funny because two years ago, nobody wanted even to talk about US because it was doing so poorly. And it's, it's so, you know, people are somewhat fickle when it comes to their money and it's understandable, it's very emotional, but if, you had to think, okay, if anybody could do a good job in managing your money, who would be the most well-known investor in the world? Warren Buffett. You got it. How'd he do in the first six months? I think he's broke. <laughs> <laughs> he bet it all on red and it came up black. <laughs> uh, well, before you go and fire your advisor, yeah, yeah. you may want to see how That's Warren Buffett's true. doing. <laughs> he went... From pr- price per share of 295,000 a share to 282,000 a share, he dropped 4.64% in those six months. Yeah. So if you're sitting, wow, Warren Buffett, he's lost his touch. Nobody measures. Anybody in the right mind does not measure their portfolio by six months. In fact, even a year is way too short. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to look in bigger chunks. And I usually look at five-year chunks to be, and even greater than that, because they all have their cycle. And it was so funny, I was looking out um, two years ago, December 12, 2000, sorry, December 2016, our value US companies had done in the last year, 12%. Our growth US companies in the same year had done 2%. Two years later, 100% flip. Mm. The growth ones have done 12% and the value ones have done 2%. And this is why when you're investing money, you don't try to guess which one. You have both. Yeah. You know, you deal with both. And that's part of like having a recipe, you know, an investment mm-hmm. recipe or any recipe, if you mm-hmm. think about it. The reason a recipe exists is so that you can have a consistency and you can have a predictability in terms of, of your ec- expectations. And it guides you in terms of what, how much you should put in, how much mm-hmm. ingredients should be. What is the diversification mm-hmm. model you're going to have? Absolutely. It's kind of interesting. Franklin Templeton's come up with this. Um, diversified chart and basically what it is is a grid and it has everything from emerging markets European foreign equities global small caps global equities US large Canadian large companies US small companies Canadian small companies Canadian bonds global bonds global high yield bonds and US bonds so you can see it's it's and it's all color-coded it looks quite pretty actually (laughs) (laughs) it's uh so interesting enough if you looked at say which one has done the best 
you look and say, wow, it looks like uh, last year, 2017, emerging markets was the best, 28.7%. Hmm. Um, and it had been in those uh, 20 years, it has been the best five times, so a quarter of the time. <clears throat> but it's also been the worst three of those 20 years. And you can almost draw a line in the middle. Half the time they're better than average, half the time they're worse than average. The same thing's happening with U.S. stocks. Um, 2014 and 15, and so far in 18, and if it ends the year we're in right now, um, U.S. companies would be the best in the world. So in the last five years, they would be the best. In fact, they'd be in the last six years, they would be the best second, first or second out of all those, all those different uh, segments. But then if you go back uh, 10 years ago, they're hung, hanging out at the bottom. Things do have their way of creating cycles. Mm -hmm. And so right now, it's a little precarious because tariffs yeah. are going in, NAFTA, NAFTA yeah. all these different things. And decision. And if, if the dollar gets stronger in the US, that actually hurts their trade deficit mm -hmm. because it, people can't afford US goods. Yeah. And then people can afford the imported goods. So it's actually a double-edged sword. So. Bottom line, stick to your plan and you'll do fantastic. We are planning your financial future. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They will return your call at 905-529-7165. As well, check out the website, Andy and Don, all one word, andyanddon.com. You can listen to old archive shows there and ask a question via the listener inquiry button. Going to talk about purchasing a car. Car, I mean, and car purchases and retirement and mm. even throughout your financial life are always an ongoing decision to be mm -hmm. made, right? And uh, I think this year there was, I think the U.S. Uh, is on track to build and sell about 17.2 million cars wow. or units, including yeah. trucks, etc. Back uh, 10 years ago, when we went through the financial crisis and the recession, I think they were down around 11 million. Mm. Uh, and it's interesting because Ford stock at the time was down around nine bucks a share. And then, of course, the Obama administration uh, supported Ford, helped uh, buy, bought shares of Ford. to GM, actually. And GM? Yeah. 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 Ford, was Ford never did. Yeah, Ford That's was in good right. shape. Ford, Ford was clean, yeah. Ford yeah. was mm -hmm. clean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's a good point, yeah. And uh, yet, um, so the stock had actually got tripled up to about 20 or 30 bucks a share, and then uh, it's back down to $9 right now <laughs> for Ford. <laughs> wow. But, um, you, you know, car purchases are, are always an ongoing issue. And in retirement, and it was just, uh, I met with a couple uh, last week who were uh, part of their retirement plan was to replace their vehicle. It was every eight years. Mm -hmm. And so when we first sat down and they'd been, they'd been clients for almost 10 years now, we sat down 10 years ago thinking about their car cycles and how often they replace them and how much they like to spend. So at the time they were typically spending around $30,000 and, um, no, sorry, a high, you know, about $25,000. And then with a trade-in or something, usually around a $30,000 vehicle. So roll the clock forward 10 years and the, um, their next car purchase, according to their financial plan, their retirement plan, was to happen in 2020. And with inflation adjusted, that car purchase was going to be $35,000. So the question they had for me last week was, you know, we're thinking about replacing the car that we've got now 
instead of uh, doing it in two years. We want to know, is it doable? How does that affect our plan? Should we be rethinking all of this? And so one of the powers of being able to, you know, when you have a solid financial plan in place, it's very, uh, for us, we have the capacity then to be able to analyze those questions and actually demonstrate or show the exact dollar impact in the future of a car purchase and, um, you know, and depending on how much you're going to spend on it. So a couple of factors have changed over the last 10 years. And um, for some reason, their car likes and dislikes, they seem to have gone from uh, sort of a envelope, brown envelope kind of car to uh, now they want a higher end nice. vehicle. <laughs> so so the original, the original goal of a $30,000 car has now become, they've got a $60,000 car, which is on the radar. Oh my. Yeah. <laughs> So it was a good jump, yes, and uh, as I just said, it was supposed to happen in the fall 2020, and now we're thinking about fall 2018. And so, funny how that happens with car yeah. purchases. <laughs> I had one just last week say the same. I'm going to wait for the 2019 or 20s. The next Models. thing you know, I get this BMW. Says I've de- I've decided already which one I'm getting. Uh, well, you know, it's an co- emotional buy. I, I was just going to say, it's such an emotional buy because yeah. I'm listening to, and he had the brochures out of a couple <laughs> of different vehicles. You're done then. And he had done, re- he'd been to four dealerships already. He said, I can't go back to the same one and ask this. I, I'll drive them crazy if I keep asking them all mm-hmm. the same questions. And, uh, and the prices all worked out, et cetera, for what they would kind of cost right now. And, but what was, what the selling features were is that I had, I had to go to the 60,000 model because the 50,000 model didn't have all the safety features that I sure. wanted. And I said, so yeah. what are the safety features? Well, you know, there's now lane departure, uh, adjustable cruise control, um, Breaking for like a, like a near object breaking, like if you're backing up or going, it, the the thing will automatically break. And you won't hit anything. Yeah, <laughs> can't hit anything. <laughs> How did we ever drive before? <laughs> I don't <laughs> understand. <laughs> uh, well, that's funny. We had that conversation. Said, so, well, we seem to struggle through before without getting into the accidents, <laughs> yeah. but. That said, and he said, well, I'm getting older now. <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I can't turn my head as easy as I used to. And there's a lot of truth to that, the age proofing. Yes. You're, you know, just as people get older, um, definitely turning for the blind spot. Yeah. Um, you know, the chiropractic offices are full based That's on true. that alone because they're neck issues or whatever. Yeah. And oh, that, yeah. that uh, blind spot, on, uh, you know, the little light that flashes. Yep. What a great, that I, there's one thing I think is a great improvement. That's uh, the one. I, well, it's funny you say that because I I wonder if anybody under 50 says that. No, probably <laughs> not. Probably not. So I have to, it's a funny story. My mom, uh, my mom has, uh, she's living in a, in a condo unit now, now parking underground, underground. And so the window on her, I just found this out, her window on her car had broken like three months ago, but she, so she has to open, she's been having to open her door and it, to get the pass key yeah. to the garage door <laughs> to go under. So this is, and then, but the other thing, so just in the last week though, the backup beeping and sensors, the, the, the noise mm. stopped working. The beeper stopped working. Well, uh-huh. I got to call right away. I got to get, I got to get the yeah, backup the beeper. beepers fixed yeah. because I can't, I can't get into the parking spot yeah. and it's driving. It's crazy. She's good. So uh, then I found out, well, the window hasn't been working for three months. But <laughs> 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 yeah, just the uh, the, fa- the fact you have to turn right around. Yeah. yeah, it's so much easier just looking at the camera, looking at the yes. all the different mirrors you have, and the backup beeper and the backup camera. Yeah, and if yeah. you hit something backing up now, 
Boy, you, you really weren't paying attention. The system must have failed. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And no, that's why they have that new system. Yeah. Where I guess it breaks for yourself. They do. It'll actually break. And, and now, of course, you can get 360 camera views. So this was all part of this $60,000 vehicle. Yeah. So you're just, you're basically in a bubble. I think I'm due for a new car. You just tell <laughs> me about safe, all this stuff. You're in a safe <laughs> bubble. A bubble of safety around you. There's no no worries at all. Just, just go. And has got a second job on the side, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, so the certain, and then, so I was just sort of exploring the, the, what were the other options in, in terms of, um, buying the car? Like, was there any, often now there's cheap financing yeah, or yeah, I should yeah. say attractive financing, yeah. a 1.9%. And, mm-hmm. you know, 1.9% has sort of been a threshold in my mind that if you can, you know, buy a vehicle at a 1.9% financing, you're probably better to take the financing because yeah. you can put your investments to work and earn at an after-tax basis, typically higher than 2%. I think that's reasonable over Especially a five-year period. Especially with the period. TFSA. Pardon me? Especially with the tax rate savings and, account. Exactly. So, um, so parent note, this vehicle, it's a popular vehicle, no special financing. 5% was the financing rate. And uh, so certainly you could, even a line of credit, you could get it cheaper yeah. than that. But if you think about paying that on a monthly basis for 60000 and let's say they, they were able to put down 20, they had to finance forty grand. that's 755 a month. Over the five years, it was going to cost them about $5,300 in interest. And uh, it works out, they'd probably have to earn at least 7% pre-tax on their investments to be able to sort of break even on that financing rate of 5%. So probably not a good, safe bet is to just pay cash at this point for them mm-hmm. and um, and not worry about payments and, and they're off to the races. So... We kind of got through that decision. Cash made the most sense based on the financing arrangement. And uh, so, of course, now they need to take forty grand, which originally was supposed to be thirty grand, and, and, and two years further down the road. Uh, so when we actually looked at how much does that uh, impact their overall f- net worth going forward, we I said we already counted for the car being bought, but just not as much and not as soon. Show them the numbers. Between now and they're 70, uh, 73 now, um, sorry, they're, sorry, they're 60 now, uh, and we were looking at age 90, so 30 years out, the difference is about $30,000 in terms of their net worth. So put that in perspective, we're talking about 30 years, $30,000. As I said to them, this is not going to, doing this sooner rather than later and spending 20 grand more is not going to change your future lifestyle in terms of how much you can spend right. uh, and and your and the choices you're going to make going down the road. It might mean a slightly. It's going to mean about thirty thousand less inheritance right. for your three kids, yeah. but <laughs> we're talking thirty years down yeah, the road, yeah. right? And and their net worth was going to continue to grow over time anyway. So they weren't spending all of their capital at this point. So it all it all started to look pretty good. And then the question was, well, where do we take the money from? So we've got various investments. We've got some cash, you know, TFSA, you know, non-registered investments, or RSP or RIF. Like, do we cash it some in? Like, where does it come from? And um and we boiled it down to the TFSA. We wanted to leave that money alone for now. So let it continue to grow tax sheltered. Uh, the RIFs or the RSPs, I should say, um, there's a possibility to take some out depending on their income this year. But in general, they're sort of on the cusp there. It might push them into a higher tax bracket if we took money out of RSPs to pay for this. 
and so that sort of fell back to they have their non-registered investment accounts, their joint account, joint investment accounts. And years ago, when we first set up the plan, what we what we realized is that uh, she was more conservative than him. So we and we ended up with three pots of money. One which was a conservative pot of money. We'll call that a number one on a scale of one to five. We had an aggressive pot of money, which was a four out of five, and that was his. And then we had sort of a middle-of-the-row pot of money, and that was sort of a soft between the two of them. And we had pretty much allocated, um, you know, about 60, about sorry, 40% to the aggressive, 40% to the medium, and 20% to the conservative portfolio going back 10 years. And so as we looked forward to using the money, we're not sure exactly when the car is going to happen. And I said, well, here are the pros and cons are. If we take it from the aggressive one right now, the pros are is that we've we've made some good returns on this. Yeah. This has averaged around 8% a year for the last 10 years. Uh, we've had some good growth on it. Maybe it's good to take some profit from this right now. And, uh, and that would be a strategy. The downside, the negative, is that there's going to be capital gains. About uh, of that sixty thousand or forty thousand, where they took out, about half of it is going to end up being uh, a capital gain. So tax, probably in the neighborhood of around five grand of tax to that's, do it. But that's really what rebalancing is all about. Yes, it's selling the winner to buy, perhaps to buy a loser if you're moving money, if you're actually selling to buy, but or even just selling to buy something else, like a car in this case then at least you're rebalancing the portfolio, getting it back, and it's so difficult to do. You think, oh, wow, well, first of all, why do I want to sell a winner? Yeah. Because th- that cycle will change. And secondly, if I sell the winner, I got to pay tax. Yeah. And if I can give you the extreme of that, Nortel would be about the best story or yeah. the worst story of that, where people didn't want to sell it because they would have to pay so much tax. Plus, it's a safe, big company. Yeah. It will never go down. And this is the whole idea of rebalancing. You do have to sell the winners at times to rebalance. Right. And that's an excellent point. So they like the idea of taking it from the, mm-hmm. the, the more aggressive portfolio, taking some of that winner, taking some off mm-hmm. the table, I guess, if you will, and paying a bit of tax, that was okay. But then the question came, you know, I don't know, like there's NAFTA issues going on right now. What happens if the stock market suddenly in September, October, or always seem to be you know, can be a wicked month in terms of stock market performance. Often you see a correction or something happening. What happens if when the time comes to pull the trigger and we need the money that the markets drop 10%, Mm -hmm. right? Now what? And I said, ah, well, you know what? Then we'll revert back to portfolio number one, the conservative portfolio, because it will hold its ground during a downturn Mm -hmm. in the market. And then once, and at that point, we can actually then look to, you know, we can rebuild that conservative portfolio once the growth portfolio takes off right. again. So if it's a year or two down the line, we can do exactly what Don said, take some profit from that one that's growing really well, take sell it while it's high, and reallocate that to the conservative portfolio so that they build that one back up again to accommodate any future purchases or even maybe the next car eight years from now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, 
so we put a strategy together in terms of how to finance the car, sorry, how to buy the car and do that, what the impact would be in terms of their retirement plan. We were able to put a strategy together to, uh, to deal with market conditions. Where is the money going to come from at the time that we need it? Because car purchase, you know, they haven't signed anything yet. They're, mm-hmm. they're just totally in the preliminary stage. This, I could get a call in, uh, in three weeks or, or, or six months yeah. to, that we've, they pulled the trigger and they're ready to do it. So we don't know when it's going to happen. So they have a game plan and now they know what the game plan is going to be in terms of where the money is going to come from based on market conditions at the time when they make the sale. And now they're, they're both, now they're getting excited about the idea of doing it and getting ready to, to proceed. So, um, a car purchase is always an ongoing issue. It should be built into your financial plan. And uh, adjusting the dates is never really a huge issue because <laughs> mm-hmm. it happens all the time. I mean, we're, we're pretty good, but we can't get the exact date and year that you're going to buy a car. Something might happen. Other right. issues might happen. Or they need, in this case, they wanted some more space as well for grandchildren. So, mm. <laughs> But funny enough, in our, in our financial plans, um, car purchases are included. We try to guess based on what they've done in the past and look at so you know every five years you buy a thirty thousand dollar car with trade-in plus it is indexed with inflation so you know after 10 years it could be a now a forty thousand dollar car mm-hmm. and it's so important to add that to the plan because this is the second largest purchase yeah. that we make and we do it more than once we do it all yeah. the time yeah. and it, it becomes just almost just another thing we have to do but if you broke it down monthly it adds up a fair bit. Um, not only if you have to pay monthly in a, in a lease payment or a monthly payment on a loan, but even just the principal. So a $30,000 car over 30 months, that's 1000 a month. Yeah. Yes. And uh, that's after tax dollars yeah. for people that aren't business owners. And it's a depreciating asset, which yeah. is kind of... True <laughs> enough. So <laughs> it's a, you know, I mean, these, these folks have looked after their vehicles and the last one, they kept one for 13 years. So they'd actually extended a, yeah. one of the cycles a lot further than they would have. So uh, I think they deserve the, uh, the fancy car <laughs> with all the extra sure. safety features. <laughs> but if you, had, if you had one kind of suggestion for a car, it might be getting a two-year-old car. Mm-hmm. That was another thought they had as well. Should we wait the two years and get something a couple of years older too? That I don't know. But yeah. then they miss out on all those new uh, safety features, exactly. right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. New high tech for the grandkids. You got it. Uh, we are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. You can call now, leave a message. They will return your call. 905-529-7165 and check out the website at andyanddon.com that's andyanddon.com you can ask a question via the lister inquiry button or listen to old shows we're coming right back we are planning your financial future i'm scott thompson andy lister and don fox are here from investors group financial services inc call now 905-529-7165 they will return your call and check out their website at andyanddon.com that's andyanddon.com Bubbles are bound to burst. Is that what you're telling us now? Yeah, they uh, they definitely do. And uh, when they burst, they burst quick, just like a bubble. And that's why they call anything that rises very quickly mm-hmm. a bubble mm-hmm. because of just how fast all some poof gone. And, and then you can't even get rid of the stuff. And, you know, you go back. It's been a while since we well, – actually, it hasn't been long since the last bubble. I would suggest the last bubble would be Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, it wasn't long ago. All of a sudden, oh yeah, I forgot it's like about 19, that. Like nineteen thousand a share. At yeah, one point. nineteen thousand, and it actually went under six thousand. I think it's up to eight now, but don't quote me on that. Yeah. You don't hear anything about it now. No, it's like, who? What Bitcoin? You yeah, know, and yeah. that we're only talking about, <clears throat> oh, eight months ago. 
yeah. it was on the tip of everybody's tongue. Yeah. Oh, we got. In fact, clients were saying, you know, how do I get into this Bitcoin thing? Well, then you're, you know, you know the bubble is getting there yeah. because of. Yeah. And a uh, weed stock might like be. Sorry, you're going to bring up the weed stocks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It yeah. might be. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's there's no earnings basically, and the stock price has uh, gone up tremendously from over, you know, just over a dollar a share for say Canopy to now. 60 70 dollars a share yeah yeah so you know and these but you go back uh, in time a bit i don't know about you but i bought my first house in 1986 and by 1989 it had doubled mm-hmm. you know a sixty-five thousand dollar house in hamilton was worth one hundred thirty thousand three years later mm-hmm. unfortunately um the bubble did burst and yeah. it took hamilton particularly mm-hmm. a long long time yeah. burlington came back quicker um oakville came back quick closer to toronto did better but again, anybody got, and there's so many people trying to rent out their houses and real estate, and actually sounds a lot, very similar to what we've, we have been hearing. Mm-hmm. And you're starting to see a slowdown in housing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, th- usually it's because something, sh- there's a change, whether it's a tax change, uh, interest rate change, a recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and 1990 was a bit of a recession. And uh, then of course, boom, out goes poof. All these houses dropped, uh, it took four years, four negative years in a row, but Mm -hmm. you lost about 30% on your house. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had one uh, late 90s. The interesting thing about that, you know, when you think about a real estate bubble, it's, it doesn't burst as quickly. You're right. And, and it's so, so the, it's kind of a, it sneaks up on you and it can be a little more, in some ways it can be a little more painful because you're hanging on, hanging on, hanging on, and then you finally lose patience. Whereas when a bubble bursts like a Bitcoin or a stock market, you go, well, I couldn't have done anything about it. Boom, it's done. You know, it's over. There doesn't seem to be the emergency to sell it as much. And right. people still need houses, but it's just a slow grind. <laughs> the and death to, by a thousand cuts. It right? is. <laughs> and at the same time, you're hearing all the real estate agents still saying how real estate prices are going to rebound. Yeah. And I think there's a bit of a vested interest because mm-hmm. if they sit in, tr- if their houses are going to go down, well, I'll wait for them to go down a bit further yeah, until well, I true. buy. Yeah. So they're very biased in that uh, belief. But uh, the next one was a dot-com bubble. And uh, we talked about that earlier mm-hmm. on the show and how... You know, tech stocks, literally, if you weren't in them, you weren't making money. And if you, there's a time where if you just put dot .com behind, a, beside a company's name, yeah. the price doubled. Yeah. It didn't matter. Uh, pet food. Oh, petfood.com. <laughs> doubled. Yeah. It's, it was unbelievable. It was crazy. And there was a, a time all the bank stocks were dropping. Anything that wasn't going up 10% a month, it's like, oh, I got to get into the real stuff. Mm. You know, and sure enough, that there was a big, a big burst on that one. And uh, then... Then you're starting to see other ones. And there's, like I said, Bitcoin. There's that fear of missing out. And that's like that, again, I was that analogy of everybody's got their face planted against the window, looking at this party. Everybody's talking about their internet stocks or whatever. And that was what basically Bitcoin was. And it says, well, now there's this new one and cryptocurrency. And then they had like little gyms filled with people giving presentations on the next coin and the mining and why it's going to be the next takeover. And it actually does have some something to it and the security and everything to it. But when the average person is starting to speculate on something that really has no tangible value, um, it's, it's tough. And the very first bubble, guess when it was? Hmm. It was in well, 1600s. I was going to say, it was the tulip bubble. The tulip bubble. <laughs> Who would have thought? Tulip mania, it was called. And a bulb, a tulip bulb, if it was a rare one, was worth as much as a small house. And finally, all of a sudden, poof, gone, and they were worth nothing. Mm. 
but people were holding on to their rare tulip bulbs and the bulb was worth everything. So it can quick, quickly go. So there's really four phases in a, in a bubble. There's a stealth phase where astute observers spot an emerging trend, such as um, Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. They say, wow, this is kind of taking off. And then they get in early. And then there's the awareness phase where others are starting to pick up the scent. And it's a result of some media attention. And you did hear it on the radio all the time with Bitcoin. You started yeah. hearing more about it. And there's a bit of a market surge. And then there's the mania stage. And that's where it's going nuts. It is literally giving our oh, minute by minute reports on, on what is Bitcoin doing. And I don't know, you could probably think of a couple other um, you know, bubbles, uh, ba- beanie babies. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. My mm-hmm. kids were, my daughter was into those and people were trading like crazy and had to get this one. It was worth more. And, and they only got a hundred of these and it's worth a hundred dollars for this beanie baby. Pokemon cards. Yeah. Same thing. <laughs> you know, and I told my son, sell them. I'm not selling these things. They're going to go up. And sure enough, they're not worth paper. <laughs> and finally, there's the fourth stage is the blow off where prices just stall <clears throat> and drop and investors flee. And that's just like the beanie babies. So at the end of the day, it's impossible to know where you are in the phase. And I, my, my only advice is, if you see a profit is raisable, get your money out of it. You might want to keep a little in just to see if it's still going to go up, but at least get your own money out. Mm. And that way you can just lose what you, you lose some of the profits. <clears throat> yeah. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now at 905-529-7165. They will return your call. And take a peek at the website at andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. We're coming right back. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox are here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Call now. Leave a message. They'll return your call at 905-529-7165. And check out the website, andyanddon.com. That's andyanddon.com. Talking about estate planning. Estate planning. And, uh, you know, another uh, client meeting this week, which ended up being focus, focusing on uh, their, the client's estate plan. And we were reviewing a projection that was th- demonstrating to them based on if you died now, the two, you know, you and your husband died now, or if you died, you know, sort of seven years out, seven years, and all the way down right through to age uh, 95. Now, I picked age 95 because um, the, the, the client's mother uh, just passed away at age 99. Wow. And she was young. Her sisters were older mm-hmm. when, when they died. So they were into their hundreds. Yeah. And uh, so I said, you know, we better look at age 95 anyway as part of your plan for sure. And um, so, and the other thing that was, uh, that was clear too is that all of their family had really done well. There wasn't a lot of dementia or Alzheimer's or mm-hmm. cognitive issues that meant they couldn't still be in their home. Right. So the goal for this couple was to remain in their home, like so many couples, to remain in their home as long as possible. They love where they are. Uh, they've settled in. And uh, unless something dramatically changed, they're hoping to be there for the long term. So when you look at their estate plan and we began to look at how much tax is going to be paid at death, and where that tax is coming from, one of the questions or concerns they had was probate tax. And as we drilled down to look at where is the probate tax coming from and, and where, where are the big issues around that, and the biggest issue for them is the house. 
And the reason it's the house is that, like so many of their investments, they actually can designate a beneficiary for their investment. So whether it was life insurance, their tax-free savings account, or their RIFs, money can go directly to their children, with, and that bypasses your will. Right. It goes outside of your will, and it's only assets that flow through your will that are going to be subject to probate tax. So, so why wouldn't everybody do that? So the home... The, the home, you can't designate a beneficiary for your home, right? So you can't bypass your will. And, and so this is assuming that they're in it and they both die. Right. And now the home is part of the estate. The home would be sold or deemed to have been sold. And the value of the home would then be subject to probate tax as it then flows through to the beneficiaries that are named in the will. And so probate tax, this is a reference, is basically 1.5%. It's called the estate administration tax is really the the official word for it now. Um, And so their current home uh, is worth about Mm $600,000. And so the probate tax at 1.5% is $9,000. So $9,000 wasn't over the top, but what they were looking at was down the road. And so when I rolled the clock forward and we made some basic assumptions – What's your house going to grow at? What interest rate or growth rate will your home increase in value at? And we picked 5%. 5% seemed reasonable. Uh, it's certainly tre- on trend with the long-term average. Well, the client's 73 now. At In 25 years, at 98, the home has gone from 600000 to $2,031,000. Right? Well, that sounds like a staggering number, but... Basic math, 5% a year compounded over that time period. Now the home's worth over $2 million. The same probate tax is now $30,000. So $30,000 of tax going instead of $9,000. And so the question is, well, what can we do? Can we uh, add our kids as joint ownership? Well, maybe, but now they lose. you lose principal residence exemption on the value of that portion that is now their joint owners right. because they already own homes. And so the solution that we talked about was something called an alter ego trust or a joint survivor trust. Now, these are the same things. They're just uh, designed for one purpose only, which is to avoid probate tax. You must be at least, uh, one of you must be at least 65 years of age or older to be able to set up a joint survivor uh, trust if you are a couple. If you're an individual, like a widow or widower, then it would be an alter ego trust, which is just for one individual, again, over age 65. And basically what happens is you transfer the ownership. You create a trust, you see a lawyer, you're going to pay around 1500 bucks to get a trust set up, an alter ego trust or joint survivor trust. You're going to then transfer the ownership of the, your home, your principal residence, from being owned by you as an individual or you as a couple to being owned by your trust. And you guys are going to be the beneficiary of the trust. Mm-hmm. So in case you die at this point, or the owners of the trust, I should say, the trustees, the beneficiaries of the trust are going to be your children. So the document will say any assets in this trust, when we're both gone, will flow through to our children. And the only asset in the trust right now is the house. And so it doesn't lose its principal residence status. So there's no tax implications to transfer the ownership from being in your name uh, to the trust name. Slight possibility, although rarely, I've never seen it happen, that the land transfer tax could apply, but generally not. 
And the final thing is that they can also take their, their non-registered, joint non-registered investments and put that into the trust as well. So basically, it's a fantastic tool that is designed to avoid completely, to avoid paying probate tax on your principal residence. It's a very powerful tool. You have to run the numbers to make mm-hmm. sure it makes sense. And, uh, and But it's becoming a more popular solution right now because, to be honest, I think probate taxes are probably going to go up in the future yeah. because it's a great way to collect tax, yeah. just tax the dead. Good point. <laughs> we have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Andy Lister and Don Fox have been here from Investors Group Financial Services, Inc. Check out their website at andyanddon.com and you can call and leave a message now at 905-529-7165. Thank you, gentlemen. We'll hey, see you thanks, next week. Thanks, guys. See you next week.